Our text is Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. And I'll ask if you're able to do so that you stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Give ear to the word of the Lord. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. So let's pray and ask his blessing to us on his word that we might have understanding this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for your word. Thank you for giving us all the scriptures as a light to our feet and a lamp to our path that we might know you through faith in Christ. We might know you rightly, worship you, and live in a way that's pleasing in your sight. Give us grace this morning. Work in us by your spirit that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Renew our minds and transform our lives because we spent this time here today together in your holy word. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, we have just started a series in the book of Revelation, uh, and you might know that within the book of Revelation, there are a great number of visions, kind of things that, that God shows, that Christ himself shows to John through the means of visions. There are a great number of things that John tells us here. Uh, in the very first verse of the book, he says these things are, quote, in the King James, signified to us. A lot of things are signified to us in these visions in this book. In other words, there is a lot of symbolism through these visions in the book of Revelation. And the first one that we're going to see is here in the verses that we're looking at this morning. The visions here and in the whole book of Revelation, they're intended to teach us. There are things that we're supposed to learn from them. Uh, They're intended to comfort and encourage the persecuted church and comfort and help us to endure suffering for the sake of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's kind of the purpose for these these visions, and our text this morning has the very first of these visions, 
that's found in the book, and, and what a vision it is. Of all the ways to begin this series of visions that God, that God gave to John to give to us, uh, the first vision that we come across in this book is a vision of the glory of Christ. It's a vision of the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our outline, Lord willing, is going to follow just the natural flow and outline of the text. That's always the best way, I think, to do it. And so we're going to look at first the circumstances, the circumstances of the vision of Christ and his glory, and that's in verses uh, 9 through 11. Second, we're going to look at the substance of the vision of Christ, what it is that it reveals to us about him. So the circumstances, then the substance of the vision of Christ, and lastly, we're going to see in verses 17 through 20, at least something of the significance of that vision of the glory of Christ. So the first thing we see here in our text is in verses 9 through 11, the circumstances of this vision of Christ's glory. John writes there, he says, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now John tells us why he was on Patmos. Now this wasn't his Hawaiian vacation. He was on this, this island uh, not as a retreat. He says he was there, quote, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. If you don't know this already, many of you probably do, Patmos was an island prison. It was a place of exile where the Roman government banished people that they, they viewed as enemies of the state. And why was John there? Why was John at this place, this island prison? You know, it's like Alcatraz on steroids. There was no way to get off of this place for, for John. He was there because of his faithful witness to the message of Christ and the word of God. That's why he calls himself there in verse 9 to, to the other Christians. He says he is a, quote, partner in the tribulation as well as in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John is suffering even as he writes this book writes the things that he saw. Now, this open and violent persecution of Christians and the church in the Roman Empire began as early as the reign of Nero, Caesar Nero. He reigned from around 54 AD to just around 68. Uh, church tradition holds that both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul were executed and martyred under Nero's reign. Paul, uh, we are told, died uh, by the edge of the sword. And tradition holds that the Apostle Peter was crucified upside down, refusing to be crucified the same way as his Lord, right side up, because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified the same way as his Lord and his Savior. Uh, many, not all, but many believe that the Apostle John was the eldest and latest living apostle at the time of his death, that he suffered persecution and exile under about 30 years later under the, Ro the, the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian, uh, Domitian reigned around A.D. 81 until around A.D. 96. So that would make John right around 100 years old at the time of his death. In Fox's Book of Martyrs, we read the following. It says, in this persecution, that is under Domitian, uh, in this persecution, John the Apostle and Evangelist was exiled by the said Domitian into Patmos. 
So whatever the case, whether it happened to him under Nero or whether it happened to him under Domitian, it's pretty clear why he was there and who had sent him, at least as far as the government is concerned, who had sent him there and why they did it. Now, in telling us very briefly of of the reason for his exile, John is kind of already introducing you and I to one of the major themes that runs throughout the book of Revelation. He's actually already touched on it earlier in the chapter. And what theme is that? It's the theme of, of the church being called to bear witness to Christ and being called to endure tribulation and persecution for his name's sake in doing so. There is often a price to be paid, and there still is in many places a price to be paid for being faithful to the message of Christ and the word of God. John is kind of hinting at it here that he's, he himself is already exemplifying these very things. He was faithful as an apostle of Christ to the testimony of Christ and the word of God. And what happened? Humanly speaking, he got punished for it. He was sent to exile in uh, Patmos for that. Now notice that this persecution and exile that John suffered did not prevent him from worshiping on the Lord's Day. That is Sunday, the Christian Sabbath. John John knew what day it was. Now, I don't know how John knew what day it was. Maybe he had to keep track of, a, of the week on his own somehow, uh, of the days. But John knew what day it was when he got this vision. No doubt he did what he could, even while suffering in exile, to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. We don't know if he's by himself. We don't know if there might be other Christians who were also exiled. Whatever the case we know, John still kept track of the day and worshipped on the Lord's day. In fact, many of our Reformed forefathers used this text, this very text, to prove that the Christian Sabbath was established, was well established, all the way back in the days of the apostles themselves. There's a reason John called it what it was. It's the Lord's Day. Why? It's the day that the Lord rose from the dead, the first day of the week. Now, John in exile, worshiping on the Lord's Day, how different this is from many in our day, even professing believers who are free to do as they please. They're not in exile. They're not stuck somewhere. Nobody has a gun to their head. And yet they seem to think nothing of exiling themselves from gathering together with the people of God on Lord's Day from week to week to week. Now, it's no coincidence, I don't think, that God gave John this vision on this day. The Lord could have given John this revelation any day of the week he wanted. But he gave it to him specifically on the Lord's day when John was worshiping God, even during a time of painful exile from his brothers and sisters in Christ. It was then that he received this vision of Christ from Christ. And see here how the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who, verse 5, back in verse 5 tells us, is the ruler of kings on earth. See how Christ, who is the ruler of kings on earth, made even John's suffering in exile work for both his good and ours. And how is that? Because he was on this island, on this place of exile, of all places he could have been, where John received what he writes of here in this book. He could be in prison, he could be on an island prison, he could be on Patmos, he could be chained up, and yet he could be in the spirit on the Lord's day. Chains and exile and prison on this island could not stop him from worshiping God. It could not stop him from serving God. And it could not stop God from using him greatly. How many people on this earth, since John wrote this, have been blessed, converted, edified, and encouraged by this book that God gave him while he suffered there? 
Now John tells us that he was, quote, in the spirit when he received this prophetic vision and revelation of Christ. Uh, Much like the Old Testament prophets received visions from the Lord to pass along to God's people, even so John received this vision much the same way. John's only the messenger. He's not the one that came up with the message. And what's his job? His job's the same job in a sense. Now, he's an apostle. We don't have apostles. But his job is the same job in a lot of ways as as any preacher's job should be even today. And that is faithfully convey the message of the Lord to God's people. What, What was the message of the prophets? You have to say it in King James English, right? Thus saith the Lord. That's That's our job. That's my job every Sunday. That's your job. When you speak to your neighbors and others to say, here's what God says in his word. Now, he was told to write what he saw. In other words, this isn't so much a dictation as it is a picture. And he tells John to write what he sees in a book. It's twice he does this in this passage, verses 11 and verse 19. He's told to write in a book what he sees, and he's told to deliver it to the seven churches in Asia. And that's what he did. As with all of the scriptures, even so here with the book of Revelation, which is the last book of our Bible, which marks the closing of the canon of scripture, what we find here is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's why he tells us he was in the Spirit when he received this vision and everything we find in this book. The book of Revelation, just like all of scripture, is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's God-breathed. And what does that mean? It means it's the very word of God. That's what that means. When we say the Bible is inspired, we're not saying that it's, you know, it's it's like a painter painting a picture. Oh, I just felt a certain way and I painted this and I think God's kind of behind it. When we say the scriptures are inspired, including Revelation, we're saying it's the word of God down to the very words. And that leads us, I think, to the second thing that John tells us about in this passage, and that is the substance of the vision. And what is the substance of that vision It's the glory of Christ, the glory of the risen and ascended Christ. Look at verses 12 to 16. John says there, he hears a voice, right? Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the the lampstands, one like a son of man. That's If you've ever read the book of Daniel, you'll recognize that phrase. Remember the fiery furnace? And they looked in and they saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Say that five times real fast. Supposed to be three in the furnace. How many were in the furnace? Four. Now, I'm not good at math, and I'm sure they might not have been either, but they could count that high, and they said, well, wait a minute. We threw three in there. There's four, and what did they call the fourth one? One looks like a son of man. There's another person in there. And, of course, the fire didn't even singe their, their clothes. So here he sees the lampstands, and one like a son of man I believe that's written the way it is, so we think our mind, turn our minds back to Daniel. And he says, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You get the feeling John could barely even look at this vision, much less record it uh, and do it justice. What did John see in the vision? It wasn't so much a what as it was a whom, other than the lampstands and the stars. He sees a vision of the glorified Christ. What an awesome privilege this must have been for John 
to be given this vision of Christ even while he was suffering in exile. Now, before we get too far in the details of the vision, and we'll, we'll do what we can. We'll do our best to uh, go through the details in order uh, and see what it teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to understand that this vision of Christ was not given in order to show us what the risen and ascended Christ looks like. It's not, it's not intended to show us what he looks like. It's, it's given to show us what he is like. It's to show us who, who he is, not what he appears to be. Dr. Dennis Johnson, uh, many of us know him, he writes this. He writes, The symbols seen by John in this vision reveal not what Jesus looks like, but what he is like. His identity as the searcher of hearts, full of consuming holiness and boundless wisdom, the perfect priest standing for his people before the Father, the perfect king defending them against the devil by his invincible word. Revelation's visions show us how things are, not how they look to the physical eye. You know, I, I had reason while preparing for these sermons uh, to look back at some of the old uh, dispensational books. I won't drag those around too much during these sermons. I'll try not to. Uh, but one of the most common things that you'll, you'll read of in those kinds of books and that kind of literature, uh, their perspective on this is they say, as one writer did, something like this. Well, God kind of put John in a time machine of sorts. And he sent him forward in time. And John didn't know what to make of all these things. So that's kind of how he describes certain aspects later on in the book. That's why he talks about cobra helicopters and things like that. Well, that's not what he's doing at all. He's showing us through John the way things really are. Not what they look like, but the way things actually are. And this vision of the glory of Christ has a lot to teach us about the way Jesus is. Christ himself in all his glory, in all his majesty, in all his power. Um, where do you see him in the vision? In the midst of his churches, the lampstands, at the center of our lives. He is the determining reality for all that we do and all that we endure for his sake. That's, that's a big part of the message of this Vision, to borrow Dr. Johnson's phrase, the key for us, for you and me, as believers, in seeing how things really are in this life, which is what Revelation is trying to show us, uh, and not just how they look and seem to the naked eye. Like, you know, sometimes our eyes can deceive us. We think things are a certain way. The key for us to know how things really are uh, is to have an eye, the eye of faith, not the eye of sight, is to have an eye toward the exalted, glorified, and reigning Christ. It's only when you have one eye on him that you'll see how the way things really are in this life. Here we are to learn that one of the greatest needs in our lives on this side of glory is to have a firm view of the glory of Christ our Savior and Lord. A steady glimpse of the glory of Christ will lead us to be his faithful witnesses. A view to the glory of Christ will make us willing, make us be willing and able to endure whatever tribulation and persecution come our way on account of our faithful testimony to our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And why is that? Why do we, why do I, why do you, why do we most often fail to bear witness to Christ? You can sum it up in one word. Fear. Is that not why? Everybody's busy. I'm busy. You're busy. Is it really busyness that keeps us from doing that? It's fear. Well, what drives out fear? What's, what's best suited to drive out those kinds of fears. Because persecution is real. It's not like you're making it up. 
People in this world are persecuted just like John was, and sometimes even worse, for bearing witness to Christ. What's the only thing that could keep you faithful in doing that despite all that? Having an eye on Christ, the eye of, of faith, and seeing his glory. And the first thing that John tells us in the vision was that he saw seven golden lampstands, verse 12. Now in verse 20, if I can peek ahead a little bit to help here, what are we told about those seven lampstands? What are they? John says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Actually, who says that? Christ says that. The exalted Christ gives us kind of the key code of part of the vision. And so for this one like a son of man to be in the midst of the lampstands, what does that teach you and me? It teaches us that uh, about the faithful presence of our Lord with his church. It reminds the suffering church of the reality of his watchful, providential care and presence for us, even with John in exile. John was in exile, but who was with John? The Lord, every bit as much with him as he had ever been. What did Jesus say to the apostles when he gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28? In verse 20, he says, And behold, or lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He was with John always, even to the end of the age even on Patmos. The long robe and sash that he wore speaks of his ongoing office and activity as our great high priest in representing us before God the Father and interceding for us on our behalf. His white hair like white wool and like snow emphasize and teach us to remember Christ as the Ancient of Days, the eternal God who is infinite in wisdom and so is able to care for and defend his church. His eyes being like a flame of fire, verse 14. What what does fire make you think of? When you think of fire in the Old Testament, what do you think of? God's presence, God's power, flame is, is heat. It teaches us about his infinite holiness. And the fact that it's his eyes that are a flame of fire teaches us about the infinite holiness of his gaze, that he sees all things. He sees all, just like a flame of fire refines things. He sees all things. That means none of your most feeble, feeble stammering efforts at bearing witness for Christ, and that's probably, that probably describes most of all of our best efforts at witnessing for Christ, none of that escapes his, his notice. None of the suffering and persecution that God's redeemed endure in this life for his sake escapes his notice. He sees all of it, and he sees all of it through his gaze of, of holiness. That is good news and great comfort for God's people, but that's also a great terror it should be for those who persist in unrepentance and unbelief, especially for those who would persecute the apple of God's eye. He sees it, he takes notice of it, and one day he will make it right. His feet being like, quote, like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, verse 15. What does that teach us? When you think of someone's feet being like bronze, like bronze that have been polished up pretty well and refined in fire, nothing mixed in it, I think it teaches us that he can't be moved. His purposes for his people, for you and for me and for his glory, will stand. He does not have feet of clay like we so often do. That should speak great comfort to God's people, especially in time of trial. That should also speak great terror for those who oppose him and persecute his church. God's purposes will stand. He cannot be moved. Whatever he has said will come to pass. Not a word from his mouth will fall to the ground. 
All of his promises, all of his threatenings that are yes and amen in Christ will not fall or fail. His voice being like the roar of many waters. Remember that vision in Isaiah chapter 6? At the voice of him who spoke, what happened? The thresh, the, the whole building shook. The whole temple, the, the threshold shook, and probably so did Isaiah's knees. Well, here it says his voice is like the roar of many waters, verse 15. I don't know if you've been to a place with a lot of water moving, maybe a waterfall. You probably couldn't hear yourself think. The sound uh, speaks of the, the depth and overwhelming power of God's word. It's a, you get the feeling like you, know, you, got a, you felt the rumble in your chest if you were John sitting there listening to his voice speaking. That's how you and I should approach God's word. We should tremble at it and revere it at all times in whatever he says in it. That's the reality of the, of the word of God is in this vision of, of it sounding like many waters. The last thing John says in verse 16 is that this one like a son of man, what is he holding in his right hand? Seven stars. Now, I don't know that we get a real picture here of how big this looked to John. I, we don't know if he looked like in Isaiah's vision, the Lord was lofty and exalted and the train of his robe filled the temple. I mean, the hem of the bottom of his robe. Notice also, What's this vision of Christ? What's he wearing? A long robe. We're supposed to connect the dots here. It's probably the same kind of a thing. He's holding stars in his hand. This vision was probably rather enormous. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I mean, holding stars in his hand. If that doesn't impress us, I don't know what... Well, imagine, imagine the overwhelming enormity of this vision. Imagine what John must have thought when he maybe had to crane his neck back to look and get a look at everything he was taking in. The power to hold stars in his hand as if they were pebbles. And the sharp two-edged sword that came from his mouth, that, that is no doubt what? What do you think that is? The Word of God. The Word of God itself calls itself a sword multiple times. Paul, in Ephesians 6.17, talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is... The word of God in the armor of God. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any what? Two-edged sword, same idea, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now in those passages, this is a technicality, you can ignore it if you want, but uh, the sword used there is a, is a small sword. This one is, uh, scholars believe, it's like a broad sword. It's one that you use in battle. In other words, this is a sword wielded by someone who's leading his forces in battle. And, and what is the weapon? The weapons of our warfare, what does Paul say, are not carnal, but they're mighty for pulling down strongholds. The weapons of our warfare are the things Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. And one of those, the primary weapon, maybe the only weapon, is the word of God, the sword of the Spirit. The weapon by which King Jesus goes forth as the King of Kings to conquer and conquering is his word. And it's a two-edged sword that's very sharp. It cuts two ways. It cuts one way unto salvation by his grace toward those who repent and believe in him. And the other way it cuts is unto judgment for those who persist in sin and unbelief. Either way it cuts. Either way it is sharper than any two-edged sword and is living and active. Looking at his face was like trying to look into the sun at noon. What does that call to mind if you know your book, the book of Acts? The Apostle Paul in Acts 9 is going on the Damascus Road. He's going to destroy the church. And what happens? 
He gets blinded by a light at noon. How, how bright does a light have to be to blind someone and knock them off their horse at high noon? Well, this is something like what we see in this glory. His face is shining like the sun in its full strength. You can barely look at it and look at him, even in this vision that God gave to John. Well, the last thing that brings us to the third thing that we see in our text in verses 17 to 20 is the significance, the meaning of the message, this vision of Christ, the significance of the, of the vision of Christ. John not only sees the vision of the glory of Christ, but he receives a message from him as well, part of which explains the vision and its significance. In verses 17 through 20, John writes this. He says, When I saw him, this vision of Christ, with you know the sun, his face shining like the sun and the sword out of his mouth and all of that. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Probably a pretty good response. I imagine if we saw anything remotely similar, we would do the same thing. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. He basically explains the parts of the vision that we might not understand. The rest of the vision I think we, we get just fine. We know it's a vision of Christ and his glory. The two parts we might not get, he is kind enough and gracious enough to explain to us. Now when John saw this vision of the glory of Christ... What, what was his response? What was his only natural reaction was to fall at his feet as though dead? And that brings to mind that, that passage we read earlier in the service in Isaiah chapter 6, when he talks about the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's the Lord of armies. The Lord of, it's a military picture. The whole earth is full of his glory. You can't even begin to picture that in your head. The whole earth is full of his glory. The, the, these burning angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of what? Unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen what? The King, the Lord of hosts. He uses that phrase, Lord of hosts, twice. What was the first thing he says in the ver in verse 1? In the year that King Uzziah died, what's he saying at the end there? The king died, but I saw the real king. That's the point. And the real king doesn't just have human armies. He's the Lord of hosts. And what did he do? He thought he was a dead man. He, would, he wasn't wrong in some regard. John and Isaiah had similar visions. They both had visions of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we saw earlier in John 12, 41, Isaiah, uh, John says that Isaiah, quote, saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah had a, had a vision of the glory of Christ, just like John does here in Revelation 1. No wonder John fell at his feet as if dead. And no wonder Isaiah thought he was a dead man walking. 
But then what happened to John, just like it happened with Isaiah? What did, what did this exalted Christ who holds stars in his right hand and has a sword coming out of his mouth and whose eyes were like a flame of fire, what does he do? He does the strangest thing. Puts his right hand on John. John's already scared enough as it is. Who knows what he was thinking when this was happening? He puts his right hand on him and says two words that we hear in Scripture uh, given to sinners by God's grace. Fear not. And if you think about it, that's the strangest sentence in this entire passage. It makes, in a sense, the least sense of anything in the entire vision. How is it possible that the Lord, the glorified Christ, can say such a thing to a sinner? To a human being, even John was very much still a sinner. How can one who's that holy and powerful and glorious and majestic tell a sinner, fear not? Well, he tells him why. He says he was the living one who had died and is now alive forevermore. Verse 18. What's he talking about? He's talking about his death and resurrection. He's saying that even in this opening chapter of Revelation, we're reminded again of the death and resurrection of Christ for the salvation of sinners. It's only because of that that we who are believers in Christ can be told not to fear by the most fearsome one that there could ever be, the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. John was not wrong to fear when it came to seeing that vision of Christ but Christ himself tells him and tells us, if you're a believer in him, not to fear. And if we're told not to fear him, what should we have to fear of anyone else? Not only that, but Jesus tells him that he holds what? The keys of death and Hades. It may sound like a strange phrase to, to many of us. Now, what's he saying? He's saying nothing, not even death itself, can come to you and I or any believer without coming first through the hand of the one who holds those seven stars in his hand. He's got the keys to Nero and Domitian and those who persecute the church throughout the history of this world until Christ comes again. Who do, who do they think has the keys? They think they do. They have a very exalted view of themselves and have a very low view, if anything, of Christ. And he tells his apostle he holds the keys of death and Hades, the raging fury of the kings and rulers of this world who so often rage against Christ and his church are as nothing before him. They can do nothing to you, they can do nothing to God's people that he himself does not first permit for his own purposes and for our good. Even John's exile to Patmos only came to him through the permission of his Savior and King. Thankfully, verse 20, the Lord gives us his inspired uh, answer key or his interpretation or explanation for a couple of those images in the vision. He says there that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Remember before when we looked at the previous verses, we said that what does the number seven represent? Completeness in the Bible. And so there are seven churches from Asia Minor picked and named here in the vision. Well, there, were there more than seven churches in Asia Minor? Yes, there were. And he's not saying the other ones don't matter. He's not saying the other ones don't have problems. These seven are chosen as a picture of all the church in all her completeness throughout the world and throughout time until Christ returns. And so these seven uh, lampstands, golden lampstands, 
are really representing not just those seven churches, but all the church throughout time until Christ returns. And those seven stars, which are the angels of the seven churches. Now, that might take a little bit more explanation, but the, the word angel means messenger. And if you're sitting there wondering why would he write letters, if you read chapters 2 and 3, he says, write to the angel of the church at Ephesus and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Does, does John, was John writing letters to angels? Is that the actual angels, angelic beings, like the seraphim and whatnot? Is that what he's doing? No, he's writing these letters to the, the angels or the messengers of the churches. And so the stars... Uh, I have to be careful how I tread here, but the stars are the ministers in the churches. In some ways, you know, I know you're thinking, great, now the pastor has a big head. He's a star, a star in the book of Revelation. Yeah, I don't think that. Uh, Many seem to think that these days, don't they? But that's not what he means. What does a star do? Well, it's nothing in comparison to the sun shining at full strength, but a star gives light. What does a lampstand do, kids? What does a candlestick do? I know you don't know what that is. What's a candlestick? It holds a, does a candlestick give light on its own? If it doesn't have a candle, is there any light? No. A candlestick holds the candle, holds the light. So the church and her ministers have one purpose. And what is that purpose? To shine the light of Christ. And if we don't shine the light of Christ, we are not fulfilling our purposes. We are to bear witness to the light of the world, which is Jesus Christ. That is our purpose. And so I have to ask Are we shining as lights in a dark place? Are you shining as a light in a dark place? You are in a dark place. Are you shining as a light in it? Are we as a church shining light as lights in a dark place? Are we bearing witness, myself and everyone here, bearing witness to Christ and the word of God, shining as his light in a lost and dark world? This this vision gives us, I think, a right view of Christ, it gives us a right view of our circumstances, and it gives us a right view of the church and ministry. In a way, that's what the message of the book of Revelation kind of is. We as God's people, both the church in general and her ministers in particular, uh, are to shine the light of the Lord wherever we are. And how do we do that? The same phrase John has used twice so far in the first chapter. By faithfulness to, quote, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Shining a light doesn't mean saying whatever comes into our heads. Shining a light doesn't mean coming up with new messages or agreeing with the culture around us and making them feel happy and and feel accommodated. Faithfulness to, to Christ is faithfulness, and shining a light means being faithful to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And if we're doing that, if we're bearing witness faithfully to Christ, his testimony, and the word of God, if we're doing that, no matter how small we may be, no matter how unimportant and unimpressive and insignificant we may appear to many, even ourselves, then we can be sure that the Lord of glory walks among us, that we are one of those lampstands that he walks among uh, and causes our light to shine. We can even be sure that he holds our ministers in his hand and our ministries in his hand. Think about that. That's, that's what he's, he want, he's wanting to rearrange our view of everything. You know, we sing the song, he's got the whole world, I won't sing it, in his hands. He's got the church in his hands. He's got the church's ministers and the ministry of his holy word in his hands. And he walks among the lampstands, caring for them and watching over them. If you are in that kind of a church, 
If you're a part of that, no matter how big or small it may be, you are part of the most important organization on this earth. Because Christ walks among us. And Christ holds us in his hands if we bear witness to him. He makes that witness bear fruit. You may not see it. You may not think much of it. We don't think the harvest is very big sometimes, but he makes it bear fruit. But if we're not doing that, if we're not doing that, no matter how large we may be, no matter how important or influential we may seem, no matter how beautiful of a church building we may have, we may not even be a church at all, as we're going to see in the very next chapter. We may have our lampstands taken away if we're not shining a light, because if we're not shining a light, there's no church and there's no point at all. God's people may suffer on account of our testimony to Christ and the word of God, but our Lord Jesus Christ, as this vision begins to tell us, is with us always, even to the end of the age. It is he himself who is still gathering and defending his church. And as Paul says in Romans 8.37, we are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. That's, that's Revelation. You want to know what Revelation is about? Read Romans 8. That's the message of Revelation. It's the message of Psalm 3 we read this morning in Isaiah 6. He's with us always, even to the end of the age. And so we rest secure in him and can fear not. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the book of Revelation. We thank you for this book that we so often find uh, intimidating and difficult and hard to understand. And yet, when we start to dive into it, we see it's given not to cause us to fear, but to cause us to fear not. It's given to, to help us to be faithful in testifying to the testimony of Jesus Christ and the word of God, your word. We ask that you would uh, forgive us for the many ways that we have fallen far short in these things, and we pray that you would be pleased to continue to walk among, among us as one of your lampstands here in Ramona, that you would bless the ministry of your word, both from us ind- as individuals and as a church in general. Give us grace to be faithful to the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. And we thank you that you are the one that makes these things to bear fruit. We ask that you would cause your light to shine in and among us, that we might be useful to you in bringing many to a knowledge of Christ as Savior and Lord, that you might be glorified in us in all things. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.